If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. And welcome to a very special Q&A version of Empire with me, Anita Arnand. And me, William Durrinful. So that is the first question <laughs> that was asked by many people, which is what has happened to his pregnant pause? Um, well, I think we found out, haven't we? It was always there. <laughs> what you should do is we should do mm-hmm. it more often after my siesta in the afternoon, and then you get the pregnant pause. <laughs> it's just a sort of natural thing. I don't know. I've got a feeling that this thing goes on holiday. I hope it's never going to come back, that it returns with its luggage, a suntan, it's there. an annoying sombrero, and here it is, everybody. The pause is back. It's in your Peter Collider as well. Exactly. Yes. Anyway, we're here and you've been sending your questions in there, hundreds. Um, we are really o- overwhelmed by the response. Um, yeah, sometimes it's like, you know, it's wonderful. We just sort of chat to each other and we forget there's a world out there listening in. <laughs> so. Occasionally we go out of our houses and meet people that are actually listening, I mean, but not very often. Not often. You'll be <laughs> delighted to hear. <laughs> um, but look, the questions are really clever and smart and then making us think about things in more depth and perhaps in a, in a different way uh, than we have before. I think a lot of people are also saying that this is all stuff they just haven't got in school. Even I assumed that this would be new to a lot of Brits, but that Indians would know it from their school lessons. And we're getting so many people telling us that, uh, that even in India, they, they get either a very politicized version of their history. For example, the Indians never learn anything nice about Jinnah, uh, yeah. and the Pakistanis never learn anything nice about Gandhi or Nehru. Mm. And all sorts of people seem to be finding that the stuff we're talking about is quite new to them, which shouldn't be the case because these are really important issues that have shaped the modern world. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I thought I thought in India that this would have been taught and it was just here that it wasn't taught. But also we've been getting a lot of responses from Canada, from Australia, from Germany. This morning, there's one popped in in Germany saying, look, I'm recommending your podcast to all of my friends because the, the subjects that you're talking about may not involve our country, but the themes certainly do, which, you know... Um, it's our little international family, and I couldn't be happier. But it is interesting, isn't it, William, how many people are saying this resonates, no matter what my politics are, no matter where we are. Even we got, I don't know whether you've seen this, because we have banged on about it quite a lot. <laughs> Hello, Malcolm Turnbull, uh, one of our regular <laughs> listeners. One of our many prime ministers listening to us, exactly. Yeah, I'm sure we've got loads, but Malcolm actually tweeted in, and we're going to try and pull him in on one of the future podcasts. But again, that you know, th- these are subjects and themes that, have resonance around the world. And I, I think it's also just a subject which, partly because I think it's new in a sense, you know, it, it's even ongoing, um, has failed to make it into educational syllabuses. And yet, in a sense, it's what people have to deal with every day, whether you're a Brit going abroad and, and having to um, meet a whole load of Indians who know about Jillian Wallabug and you don't, or uh, knowing about the potato famine in Ireland and you don't, or going to the Caribbean and knowing all that stuff and you don't know it, or whether it's stuff because of political reasons, you've been given a particularly tilted version. Um, and of course, you know, there, there, there are many takes on this. We're just giving our particular versions and, and many people can and will disagree with what we say. Shall we start with some of these questions? And also those of you who are fretting saying, oh, you've left India too soon. You've gone, you've gone, you've gone. Uh, we, we're going to circle back 
because there are so many subjects. You're absolutely right. Also, I mean, frankly, it's the stuff that that Anita and I both know about best and have spent. But also, it's all. That, I mean, I'm longing to do uh, some of the early Indian stuff, uh, mm. stuff I'm working on for my current book: um, the the Pallavas, the Cholas, mm. uh, the early Indian emperors, the Rashtrakutas, the Chalukyas. Again, this is stuff that is is very little known. Uh, even in India. And then, of course, there are all the, you know, there's the, the moguls, there's the great game, there's the whole history of Afghanistan. Uh, and these, again, things that uh, we've both written about. So uh, we're definitely heading back. But the feeling was uh, that we should explore territory that was neither a British empire nor uh, about India. Uh, so we decided to go for the Ottomans. Well, let's talk about that a bit more at the end, because uh, let's stick with the questions that we've got now. Because, um, yes, you, know, you don't understand the drama. It's going to be a cliffhanger, is you it? You are crazy. You are the man in a play who's swinging from the curtain pole right you know in act one. You know who did it? I can Stop tell you that. <laughs> no. No, not yet. That's not how you build drama. Right. First question for you. This is from uh, Professor. Professor. Jim Mallinson, who says, uh, I'd like to ask the Empire Gurus, that's us, whether the East India Company would have beaten the Marathas without the help of Himmat Bahadur, Anup Giri's army of naked yogis. Uh, this is an obscure question, <laughs> but it's a terrific one. It will not surprise you to know that I'm drawn to the naked bit of this. <laughs> what? What now? Explain. So... Not a bit of history that anyone knows, uh, but a fascinating bit of history. When the uh, East India Company was trying to complete its conquests uh, of northern India at the end of the uh, 18th century, uh, they ended up allying with one of the most colorful figures uh, in Indian history, uh, who was who's a guy who's originally called Anupgiri Gosen, and after he allied with the Mughals, became known as Himat Bahadur. Now, already, this is not sort of following stereotype at all. What is a naked yogi, A, being doing being a warrior and bearing arms? And everything else. <laughs> everything else as well. And literally. And B, if he's a naked yogi, why is he allied with the moguls? <laughs> um, and so when this character um, joins at one point with the, with the army of the moguls and the Nawab of Avad, who's the Mughal governor of, of what's now UP, uh, uh, and the Afghans against the Hindu Marathas. So breaking every stereotype in Indian history. So you've got a naked Hindu holy man fighting with Afghans against the people who are now in modern India seen to be the great nationalist Hindu heroes, the Marathas. Um, there are uh, a lot of complaints from the Afghans saying, please, can you cover up a little? Um, but these guys are actually crucial crack forces. And I think the idea behind uh, Jim's question is this crucial role that he played. And at this absolutely central moment when the British East India Company in 1803 is looking to take over Delhi and attack the mighty armies, armies of the Marathas who outnumber them uh, and now are equally well-trained. The person who swings it in favor of the British is none other than our, our arms-bearing naked naked warrior Sadhu. You can't <laughs> talk about naked warriors and saying swings it at the same Listen, this is a family show. I don't know what you're doing. Did you know Himmat Bada, by the way, um, means bravery, bravery? 
Did you know that? Himmet is to have himmet is to be brave, and Bahadur, a Bahadur, is somebody who is a, a brave man. But, but he was but, he was very very brave. Oh, brave. So just tell me, I mean, the, the, the army of naked yogis. I mean, what made them so terrifying? How how did they fight? Are there any accounts of how they charged onto the battlefields and what damage they could do? There are lots of accounts, and. If you think this is actually not something that's completely over now, because if you've ever been to the Kumela or seen pictures of the Kumelas, the, the Nagasadus who come for their bathe at the confluence of the uh, the Ganges and the Yamuna, Priyag, uh, Priyagraj or Allahabad, uh, and they come with their spears. And indeed, there are often even today scuffles between one group of Nagasadus uh, and their rivals. Uh, and these are the, are the modern descendants uh, of active yogi warriors who played a major role uh, in Indian history. At one point, the Emperor Akbar, I think, comes across a bunch of Vaishnav sadhus. And Vaishnavs are, we should explain, those who uh, follow the cult of Vishnu. About to have a fight with um, the followers uh, of Lord Shiva. Uh, And there's a famous picture uh, and description of this battle. But in the 18th century, when the whole place, uh, India disintegrates and you have all these city-states fighting against each other, and then uh, even more bizarrely, these company armies wade in and start taking over increasing chunks of India. These guys are crucial allies who can actually be bought. They are, you know, they're commercial operations in many cases. And uh, Anup Giri allies with the Mughals and becomes Himat Bahadur because he, he's, he's fighting bravely for the Mughals. And then he's bought off by somebody called Ghulam Qadir, who's about to, who, who wants to take revenge on the Mughals. And at a crucial moment when Ghulam Qadir, who's this kind of, uh, kind of rollicking Afghan marauder, uh, turns up at Delhi, Himat Bahadur is meant to be guarding the ferry crossings, disappears just at the crucial moment. And the idea is that he's been bought off uh, and paid money. So he's a slippery character, but he's a fascinating character. And if anyone wants to know more about warrior, <laughs> you're not allowed to laugh. This You can't see. Uh, listeners, Anita is convulsed. I can't help it. You, t- I mean, the swinging it and the, I mean, the slippery character. I mean, do you know what you're doing? Or is this just all Freudian slippage going on? It's complete innocence. I'm oh, a good Catholic no. boy. I used to be an altar boy, I'll have you know. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, never crossed my mind. No, thank you, thank you so much. Anyway, this guy swings the entire course of Indian history. Right, right. <laughs> well, listen, thank you very much for that comprehensive and slightly X-rated answer. Um, <laughs> what is our next question? Where are we going next? I think you've got one for me, haven't you? I do. Um, so there are lots of questions about this. This is uh, particular one is from Ravel Pillai. And uh, the question is, I'm wondering after your last podcast with Mahmoud Mamdani, whether you had any plans to discuss the migration of indentured Indian laborers around the world, especially in the sugar-growing British colonial territories after the British abolition of the transatlantic slave trade. That's um, brilliant. And I've had some uh, people from Mauritian descent, again, whose families were brought over to work on plantations saying, can you tell us a little bit more? Well, look, we we probably will return to this in much more detail, but in a nutshell, People have asked, well, why did Indians become indentured laborers? Why did they agree to sign these ridiculous contracts that, in effect, made them modern slaves? And, and the fact is, it's famine. It's poverty. It's desperation. 19th century, famine has decimated crops. People are dying. They're dying in, in such enormous numbers. We touched on this. So this is the only hope that they have. And the demand for Indian indentured labourers increases so much more after the abolition of slavery. So you've got the abolition of slavery in 1834. Plantations still need workers. They can't haul over slaves anymore, not legally they can't. So they turn 
to India for very, very cheap labor. And this is where you get this this term coolie arrives. Now, those people from India will know coolie as a... A porter, someone at at a train station, yeah. In the train station, they wear red. um, As they did, incidentally, in Mughal times. And those red red jackets that you see coolies wearing at train stations are there in Mughal miniatures. There's a wonderful picture in the Metropolitan Museum that I saw very recently, actually, of people carrying the Emperor Aurangzeb in the palanquin. And bizarrely, the palanquin bearers have exactly the same red jacket, which uh, railway porters wear in Delhi today. Well, this entire Bollywood film, and we, we, I mean, you know, we're like we're going off on tangents, but this entire film that was Amitabh Bachchan, I remember it, but my very first visit to India, nineteen eighty four, it came out. Yeah, yeah so he's so he's a, he's one of these coolies which still exist um, on the platform, and, and the most prized possession is one of these badges that allows you to work on the stations. Anyway, that's my digression. But then it started me thinking actually with this term coolie, where does it come from? Do you know where it comes from? It comes from the Tamil. It, it actually means it comes from the word for payment for occasional menial work. That's just like that. li- quite literal. <laughs> you are a menial worker paid a pittance is what, you know, they wear their function on, on their badge. And before 1840, a lot of these labourers who were then sent all over the world were so-called, um, I mean, this is what the Brits called them, hill coolies. So the, these are the indigenous people around the plains, the Gangetic plains, you know, what we would call Dravidians, I guess, darker, smaller, small boned. But later when this sort of terrible famine starts sweeping, this indentured labour system sweeps across caste. So you'll have high caste, low caste Dravidians all seeking work to feed their families. And just to give you an idea, one of my friends who, who also wanted to know uh, the answer to this question, so thank you very much, Ravel, Eli, for asking it. But it's just numbers. So let's just talk about Mauritius for a second, which is where my friend Maya comes from. In 1834, just one year, 41,000 Bengali labourers were sent to Mauritius. Amitav Ghosh writes rather beautifully about this uh, in his uh, his sort of opium war saga, uh, and and these characters going off to Mauritius uh, on an indentured labour ship, having been conned in the novel into signing one of these contracts. Yeah, because most of them, are, you know, a lot of people are illiterate; they don't know what they're signing. They have no idea how long they're going to be kept in these conditions. Uh, we had our, our lovely Professor Mandani talking about, you know, the, the lions of Savo. I don't, I don't think we did that enough justice, but these two lions in Savo uh, who, who were patrolling up and down what was then known as the lunatic line, this, this, this railway mm. that was being laid by the British with a lot of indentured labourers at the beginning. These lions picked off hundreds of coolies, hundreds of them. And disease carried off hundreds more. Um, but the conditions are so bad. I mean, the Savo example is just one, but there are missionaries who are following these migrations to work on plantations, basically do the jobs that slaves once did. And these reports start coming in by about, I mean, so it's almost sort of, sort of, after such great numbers, I mean, since 1835, 1836, saying that this is not how Christian people treat people. And so in 1838, there was so much reporting of abuse and torture of these Indian indentured labourers that it became illegal. Until 1842, when British Prime Minister Robert Peel said, actually, we do need them. We'll have safeguards, but we're going to start the system again. So, I mean, you know what? There's an awful lot more we can say. You have just reminded me how rich this subject is. And this this is a major piece of history. There there are entire settler colonies now. Uh, if you why are the Indians in the Caribbean? Why, for example, V.S. Naipaul's ancestors uh, in Chiguanas in Trinidad? The answer: his ancestors in UP signed a contract and found themselves carted off to Trinidad. 
Yeah, no, 100%. 100%. The whole of Guyana. What, Jamaica, British Guyana, Trinidad, uh, emigration to these places was, was only legalized in 1844. But, you know, the workers were often there before that. You had emigration to Grenada, St. Lucia. Uh, that was, I think, legalized in the 18, mid-1850s. It's, it, it's as big a, a thing in determining sort of world migrant population as the slave trade itself. Uh, yeah. It's a huge part of history. And, and while there's a lot written on slavery, there's much less written on indentured labor. It is a subject we must come back to, I think. And, uh, absolutely. And you know what? If we do come back to it, there is an absolute direct link between that generation here in Britain and the people, a lot of people who came over on Windrush as well. So and I think Naipaul was one of those. It may well be the Does case. That, that, that's right, isn't it? B.S. Naipaul, the writer, is exactly one of those who spans that history. And that makes me think, actually, William, in the future, we might want to bring some, um, actually, literature, high literature. You know a thing or two about that. We should bring that in. There is a very good book on indentured labourers in specifically Guyana by somebody called Gautra Bahada. Um, and we've had her at the Jaipur Literature Festival, and she was astonishing. And again, this made a huge impact because it's a story that affects a lot of the people, that a lot of people have relations or ancestors who have this history, but there's nothing written on it. It's, quite, it's again one of these weird little corners of history that's really important, but unwritten. And if you if you sort of scratch the surface of it, you see there are some really familiar names that come into play. So, I mean, I was looking, looking through um, some, some documents. Um, the colonial office was written to, there were accounts and, and, and held by the colonial office, from people like Anthony Trollope and Charles Kingsley, saying, no, it's fine. It's fine. This system is fine. <laughs> what all the fuss is about? Insisting that indenture was positive for migrants. What is the relation, Anita, and I don't know the answer to this, what's the relation between colonial indentured labour, which is something that seems to have been around particularly the early 19th century, and modern bonded labour, where you have people who've got into debt, for example, in Sindh and Pakistan, there are large numbers of labourers who are often still shackled, and you see occasional human rights reports about this. Is it the same system? I mean, effectively, yes. I mean, it feels to me, it feels, and I don't I don't know, maybe we, we can get to the bottom of this, and somebody who's listening may know better than me, but it feels like semantics to me. Yeah. Because, you know, if you're, if you're put on foreign soil, and you have to stay within your camp, and you're not allowed to go, and there are men with arms who are supposedly guarding the camp but really keeping you in, how is that different to actually being shackled and not being able to go? Either way, you know, you're, you're either paying off a debt or you're getting paid very little uh, subsistence to who you're hopefully sent back. So there is, a, there is a financial exchange which makes this different to slavery, but otherwise between the two, I, I don't see a whisker between them. I was. I remember covering this in 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 the nineties when I was first a foreign correspondent in India in in my twenties, uh, and there were large numbers. I mean, in in the tens of thousands uh, of these people, particularly I remember in Sindh. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think is is there, is it still survive in some parts of India or not? Not that I know. I mean, you would know you would know better than, than me about that. But you do get human rights reports about this, and uh, or certainly did in the nineties. Well, I mean, also there are, I mean, if we're talking about, it's not quite indentured labour, but this is, again, a very interesting avenue, I, I think. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a furrow I, I plough, which is that the, the workers who come over with the Raj to Britain, so like the Lashkas, who are the seamen who carry all of the stuff that is being mm. harvested, the tobacco, the tea, the indigo, from all over the, the colonies, and they bring them back to Victoria Docks. They get here, they're sometimes not paid, or they're sometimes paid so little they can't even afford to get back, let alone all these dreams of supporting their families. And they are then inhabiting the East India docks 
called the East India Docks for a reason. Where there's now these huge sort of Canada... Wharfs, Canada Wharf, Butler's Wharf, all Canada of these Wharfs places. Canada now very expensive real estate. Some of the most expensive real estate in, in London. But at the time, you know, these were places which were outside civil society. So, you know, nice British people wouldn't have to look at these creatures, benighted creatures. And what would happen is that opium dens would spring up because, you know, for a couple of pennies, you could get out of your head and out of the misery. The number of reports, again, from missionaries, of, of lashkas who don't have shoes and don't have coats who are just freezing to death and, you know, causing an encumbrance because their bodies have to be cleared up. There are also reports of actual torture. So there are some, some refuges which are set up, uh, which I've written about. I think, I think they might be in Sophia because her father set up a, a refuge for, for lashkas. But these places where a gang master, it is just redolent of really modern, horrific history where they will get Muslim lashkas and tie, um, pig's entrails around their throats, around their necks, and make them wear them all day as a sign of humiliation. We didn't discuss this before we, we came on air. This is, again, a story which um, I researched in my 20s very uh, heavily. I went off uh, to South Shields uh, next to Newcastle. Which is in the northern, for those of you abroad, uh, the northern part of, of Great Britain. Right. Do carry on. And the Yemeni community of South Shields is the oldest Muslim community in Britain. Uh, and these guys arrived in the 18th century with East India Company ships. Um, and, because, and the reason Yemenis rather than Indians was that these ships would change their crews at Aden. Yes. Uh, and whole new crew. Aden was also part of the East India Company uh, uh, territories. And again, one thinks of the East India Company as occupying India, but of course, the East India Company took over great chunks of territory like modern Dubai, modern Abu Dhabi, uh, briefly Somalia. Yemen. Uh, and so the Indian crews would, would get off at Aden and they'd take on new Yemeni crews. And the Yemeni crews would then get stuck in Newcastle. Wow. And there's, a, I think, a dispute on whether the Yemeni community mosque at Cardiff or the Yemeni community mosque at South Shields is the oldest in Britain. And, and, the, and historians tussle over this, but they're within a year or two of each other and they date back to the 18th century. And in the late 80s, when I was fresh out of university working on the Independent, I went and spent a couple of weeks with the Yemeni community of South Shields who are no longer there because they found Yemen was at that point getting richer than, than poor old South Shields that was in, oh, the, really? in a post-Thatcherite depression. Right. And there were these complete communities of Yemenis wearing Yemeni uh, clothes, uh, chewing gut, uh, rather like you're talking about opium, um, to, to get over the misery of their lives. These guys were, were high on gut every evening. And quite a lot of them had got Geordie wives. So you'd see these, these sort of Geordie wives uh, sitting there with their Yemeni husbands. Um, and some of them have converted to Islam, some of them haven't. And they were talking about being this this community which had been Muslim in Britain for 150 years. Well, so I mean, I, I don't want to fall out with you. You know, I don't. I do love it. But um, you know, can I just say the oldest mosque in Britain, as far as I thought, and again, please feel free to write in in your droves, was the Shah Jahan Mosque uh, in Woking, also known as the Woking Mosque, which is the maybe it's the first purpose built mosque. This is one of those moments that uh, as Tom Holland says you have to go to the Bodleian. In other words, I can look up Wikipedia. <laughs> um, <laughs> is that what he says? He's so funny. But um, I think that's the case. And the reason I, I know this, I think I did a, a TV piece about it many, many moons ago. But the one very, very fascinating fact about this Woking mosque, the Shah Jahan mosque, is that uh, the, the front man of the jam, Paul Weller, his mum was a cleaner. 
No. <laughs> this one, yes. I love this story. I just love my little little tidbit. Uh, tidbits are I'm just, I'm just making a quick visit to, uh, to the Bodleian as we speak. And you're um, quite right. It comes straight up. The Shah Jahan Mosque are working. You, Anita, Adam are right. I mean, I uh, did wrong. Say but this, it but is <laughs> true that my, I think my communities are the oldest communities, even if they haven't got the oldest mosque. I mean, it's still not, still not right. Still wasn't right. Just saying. <laughs> I was right. Let's just stay with that for more than a nanosecond. Anita was right. Okay. So I think we've answered that in such exhaustive detail. We might, we might have to be a bit quicker with the other questions. I think we're banging on too long. Time for a break. Welcome back to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Drimple. You get better, didn't you, with time? I'd be practicing. It's better for the second half. It's all practice. Uh, right. So where were we? Paul Cook. Are there any titles you'd recommend that I should watch uh, or read? Let's say read as well. And why? Do you want to kick off with that? That's a lovely question. Well, our books, obviously. <laughs> well, obviously. <laughs> obviously, all of our oeuvre. But apart from that, look, I'll start. There's a wonderful historian who has written about that sort of whole period of, of the Lashkars, the Ayers, the first emigrants to Britain. And I owe her so much. She's wonderful. Rosina Visram. Rosina Visram. Rosina Visram, who is fabulous. So anything by Rosina Visram is worth uh, reading. I'm going to give you two. Okay. I'm going to give you one, which is a sort of serious academic book. That's Rosina. Um, and the second thing I would recommend, if you just want to get into the sentiment of perhaps modern India, there's a, there's a, and you'll enjoy it no matter where you're from in the world. There's a lovely film that came out about 15, 20 years ago called Lagam, which is all about the game of cricket. And it's all about the cricket sahibs, the British. You're not going to tell me it's a true story, is it? No. <laughs> is it nothing? Like, it it's, just has to do I'm with Empire. Just capering around. No. But it's just fun. So, look, it's just a fun thing about um, Indians, how they see themselves and how they saw those Ooh. times. If you want to sort of have just a popcorn afternoon, uh, I can recommend it. So, the, the, the premise of it is, is you've got the... British sahibs in their gymkhanas who don't like the natives coming in. They've brought cricket to India. And this is the first time Tom Holland's going to hate this movie. I don't know if Tom's seen it, but it's going to make his skin peel off. <laughs> anyway, they suddenly teach the natives how to play cricket. And guess what happens? Anyway, I'll leave it to you. I don't want to blow the ending. I'm like, William. What is Ram Gur's famous line that uh, uh, in, uh, that cricket is a, uh, is an Indian game accidentally invented in Britain? Which is very <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Well, anyway, that's my quick answer. What should people read? What's a really good read on Empire? What would you say? Oh, goodness. This, I mean, I've got a library here of God knows how many books all about this. What If I had... Take one or two to my desert island. Well, we've just been talking about uh, about uh, uh, Giri uh, swinging through North India in, uh, in in the 19th century, and there's a, this extraordinary book by William Pinch on warrior yogis, which is one of the strangest and most and most wonderful wonderful books. I throw I throw one more in. We, you know what? We should do a little um, either a book groupy thing or something where we do recommendations every month. Why don't we? I love to do that do to that? really think this through and 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 come up with yeah. No, listen, thank you for that. Paul Cook, stormingly good question. Um, okay, I'm going to roll two questions into one. So this question is from Ian Charmy. Why did Europeans manage to completely take over countries like America, New Zealand and Australia, yet did not do the same in Africa and India? Was it due to the size of the population, the existing size of the population? And let's just tie that together uh, with another question here. Why were the British unable to settle permanently in India like Australia and other countries? Were their interests purely economic and transitional um, or they weren't accepted by Indians to live among them? 
So this is really one of the crucial questions um, on the British in India. And the answer is that the British in India, particularly after the collapse of the of the American colonies, when in the 1780s, Washington and uh, all the other fathers of the American nation fought off the British, um, the British reacted to that by making sure that there was never going to be in India a settler class who had land and began passing it permanently onto their uh, their successors. And one of the people who put this into law was Cornwallis, who, of course, was the person who was defeated at Yorktown by Washington and who then got hired by the East India Company to come and run their Indian possessions. You'd have thought, as he'd made such a mess of America, yeah, uh, they could find someone what, more useful. What, but... what were the references like? I mean, what... <laughs> anyway. But this is a crucial, crucial point. So Cornwallis, having seen that British and other European migrants settled in America, uh, put down roots, took farmland, and then rebelled against the British, m- took out legislation to make sure that would never happen in India. Mm-hmm. And it became illegal for the Brits to own property in India. So throughout their entire time, most Brits, with the exception, I think, of hill stations uh, and those, there were special permits for those who had indigo plantations or opium plantations. But beyond that, no Brit could own land in India. And so they lived in rented houses, largely, and they retired at the end of their career, which meant you had whole colonies of ex-colonials in towns like Cheltenham and Tunbridge Wells. So all these people who would uh, who would spend their entire working life in India always ended up at the end of their careers coming home. Those who couldn't afford Tunbridge Wells or Cheltenham um, went to Australia. And from the uh, 1840s onwards, you begin to get large numbers of the poorer, less successful ex-colonials who have made it further down the ladder than some others, um, buying land uh, among what were then the former convicts of New South Wales. That is so interesting. Isn't that interesting? It is interesting. And and this is something that I think many people don't realize, and I didn't realize it for a long time uh, until I had to follow up on this um, with my research. In a sense, the good thing about this was that it meant that when the Brits were kicked out of India, they were literally able to pack up their bags and go. They would march Mm -hmm. through the gateway of India, board a troop ship, head home, and that was that. There were a few that stayed on as judges or, or in, initially as army uh, officers and so on for two or three years afterwards, the, the stayers on. But what there wasn't was there wasn't a colonial class with plantations, with agricultural land that they'd, want, that they'd passed on from father to son and would defend. So this was the difference between the British in Rhodesia, who right. did fight uh, the, the anti-colonial movements, and you have long-running wars with insurgencies in Rhodesia uh, against a white settler colony, or even more bloody, uh, the French in Algeria. So the French Pied Noir put down roots in uh, uh, in Algeria. They they violently take over land. They evict the existing holders of land in Algeria. And when the independent struggle in Algeria reaches its uh, its peak, you have years of violent conflict and terrorism and counterterrorism and torture and uh, and bombs going off in cafes in Algiers and that, and that whole sort of Battle of Algiers scenario. Uh, and it leaves a kind of major scar on the French psyche. And you get a whole 
generations of uh, of of ex-colonials, people like uh, Bernard Henri Levy, uh, who then make a whole career out of uh, suspicion of Islam. And many of uh, Bernard Henri Levy's writings uh, uh, subsequently are are tinged with a very deep suspicion uh, of, of radical Islam, born from his childhood in Algeria. Uh, and I once remember reviewing his book on Daniel Pearl, and uh, that seemed to me to be almost completely unhinged. So, so da- Daniel Pearl, we should say, was a, a, a British journalist who was covering the early stages of the Taliban's operations, had been in Pakistan, knew it very well inside, outside, but then was taken one day, uh, going to meet a contact, and then was, I mean, horrifically beheaded. Was it one of the first sort of videos of a beheading that the world had known? It was certainly one of the most horrific. Uh, yeah. 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 But uh, anyway, so this, this is this is by the by. But the crucial point of the story is that the British never put down roots in India, and that you'd it was the colonials who were in India, however long they stayed there during their career, retired to England. Well, this is so so and dragged strange. pink gins in, uh, in 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 Tunbridge Wells. That, that I mean, Tunbridge Wells, notwithstanding, though, you do have generations of Brits who live in India. I mean, I'm just thinking of um, Reginald Dyer, just circling back to the, the program that we did about the massacre. Um, so Reginald Dyer was the man who was in charge of the shooting party and who gave the order, shoot, 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 fire, 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 um, firing those 1,650 bullets at a crowd of people who couldn't get out. Um, but he would have considered himself to be an Indian. I mean, really, I mean, he, he went, there are accounts of him coming back to Britain or Middleton College in Ireland where he was abjectly miserable, wanted to go back to India. And I think he was third generation Brit because I think his dad and his granddad ran a brewery. In, That's right, which he still survives. It's the with, Murray Brewery. The Murray Brewery. So, yeah. you know, the, so, so. I so I'm wondering whether that's another that. exception, like uh, like the plantation. I know the indigo farmers, for example, had a had a, permits basically to to get out of this rule. They could pass on their their, their indigo plantations until they went bust to, uh, from father to son. But it's an interesting question that um, whether there were exceptions for those that had businesses like breweries. I don't know. Well, I mean, certainly, certainly, I mean. It, it, happened with the Dyer family. So, um, yeah, okay, something again that we, you know what, it's a wonderful thing about doing a podcast like this, you scratch something, you go, oh, it's a good, it's a good avenue to explore. There's so many avenues, so little time. Right, have you got a question from me? I do, Anita. So, uh, Jassi Aluwalia asks, can you clear up Queen Victoria's attitude to Indians and Africans? Interesting question. You said Princess Sophia was her goddaughter. I think there were other non-white ones. Was she just more progressive than her age? Such a good question. Such a good question. So, yes, Princess Sophia, the suffragette princess we talked about earlier in the series, was her goddaughter, and Queen Victoria had affection for her. Queen Victoria had affection for her father. We've talked about that as well. But it to a point, when they started crossing boundaries, when they started challenging authority, um, the love was easily withdrawn and, and Queen Victoria famously couldn't stand Sophia's two sisters because she didn't think they were deferential enough. Not the only one, though. There was another, you know, Sarah Forbes Bonetta. So King Dahomey, the famous slaver, had uh, killed her parents, um, traumatised this child, taken her in. And it was a British captain, sea captain, who um, bought her as a gift for Queen Victoria. And Sarah Forbes Bonetta then becomes a, a fine lady of, of the Victorian court, a bit of an oddity, but you know, there's fondness there. Um, there's another one, Princess Gorama of Coorg, who comes to mind, another goddaughter of Queen Victoria. Um, so the Kingdom of Coorg, the Maharaja of Coorg, again trying to get in with 
the British, because he doesn't want his kingdom to be looted and taken, tries to cozy up to Queen Victoria, says, you know, take take my daughter and be responsible for her education, even though he loves her very, very much. I think he refers to her as his little pigeon and is deeply broken when he hands over his little pigeon. He also famously tries to evade um, rapacious British hands by burying jewels, his crown jewels, in the mud of Coerg. And I'm, I'm not sure if they found them again, but uh, that's that's what he did. You've also got, of course, the Abdul Karim. You've got the Munshi, which, which um, the famous wonderful book by Shrabani Basu, which we'd highly recommend. Hugely recommend it. And so again, you know, she was fond of him. The rest of the royal family was not. Other attitudes at the time were racist. And so, you know, she does stand up for their rights. She takes in Sophia and she looks after her when her own father has kind of detonated the relationship. But it is limited by the willingness of the native, if we can put it that way in the terms of the time, to adopt Christianity. That's number one. That's a deal breaker. They have to embrace Christ. Um, and also they have to be obedient. And so her attitude in 1857, when the great uprising breaks out, is far from liberal. The background to this is that the British press is entirely full of reports about murdered and raped British women. So the impression everyone in Britain is getting uh, is of a bunch of, of bloodthirsty murderers and rapists. Uh, and no one is getting the other side of the story, of course. Um, so she's being fed a, a line. But her response is, uh, is is far from clement, should we say. No. So it's a complicated, can we say it's a complicated um, relationship? So often it's, it's all, it's, it's nuanced. Yeah. So pro- progressive in a way that she went against her courtiers for individuals, but actually of its day when it went along with as William is saying, you know, the, the conception that actually this was a land of savages that needed saving. It was exotic and it was exciting and the Maharaja class was interesting, but, you know, that's kind of where it ended. I think that's probably fair to say. I've got another question for you, Anita. Um, this is from Ian Miller. My question is whether you think from the point of his appointment, Mountbatten A should have handled partition differently or whether his hands were tied by circumstances he found on arrival, and B, if so, how. The idea of a more orderly transition via dominion status and the independence seems more logical looking back. Um, How is the refusal of Gandhi to accept that when Jinnah was in favour looked at now? Well, I think this all just doesn't this throw us all back to the cabinet mission plan. Which is a crucial thing, which maybe we didn't focus on enough at the time. We didn't, did we? We really skirted over that. My son Sam, who's who's a partition specialist, criticised us for not making more of the cabinet mission plan. <laughs> Did he? Oh. See, your son rings you up and says, you should have made more of the cabinet mission plan. My no, one says, mummy, where are my socks? <laughs> mummy, where are my socks? <laughs> where, have I left? where have I left my jacket? Uh, it's an age difference thing, maybe, I hope. Um, look, cabinet mission plan, we should we should talk about that uh, a, a lot more. So this was the first attempt. I mean, it's a, you know, notions of diarchy where you would share rule. So Indians and, and the British would share rule of, of certain areas. So some some of the powers would absolutely remain with the British state and others could be hived off. So, you know, this idea of a diarchy, it, it didn't really go very far because it was very unpopular. Um, in Britain, among those who say who said, you know, why should we share any power with people who are not capable of handling it and wielding it, meaning the Indians, and the Indians say, why should we? Because it's not your country, get out. So you know, it wasn't. It was doomed. Uh, but then you've got this this cabinet mission plan um, where you have a group of people coming up with proposals to have some kind of peaceful transition to this greater India to something that would suit both Jinnah and Nehru, um, which seemed like an impossible 
impossible ask. And they were, they, as I understand it, or what I should say is my son explained it to me mm. patiently, the idea was a much more federal India yeah. with weaker centre and stronger regions. So Jinnah Jin wanted six full provinces, you know, six full provinces that had power and muscle. Um, and these would be equal to, that's when he wanted two equal states. Um, the centre's power would be confined to foreign affairs, defence, currency and com communications, but then there would be federated provinces which would be able to control other things. And these So this would be a bit like the e e EC maybe? This would be like a sort of India as a, as a European community of, of, of various provincial powers coming together um, and pooling their power in Brussels in the same way this federated India would, be, would, would have a weak centre which which could act together in important matters. Well, I mean, sort of with so with the you know European Union, I mean, you've got sort of sovereign states each with their own integral borders and with sort of almost equal weighting, you know, like rule out economic power. But as as a, a system of rights and integrity and expression of a nationhood, they're kind of equal. But the provinces, there were there were three groups, and again, you know, Sam and others will be able to say this in much more detail. But there were three groups. So you have like two groups constituted by, um, well, mainly Muslim Western and Eastern provinces. This is for Jinnah's, this is Jinnah's plan. The third group, mostly Hindu areas in the South and in the center. And they wanted to have this sort of federation which would equalize the powers. But the key thing was it would avoid a partition. It would avoid the two different yeah. countries yeah. having to separate. And this was something that, that Jinnah accepted. Well, Jinnah accepted and, he, and, and at first, Nehru did, and then Nehru said no, and Congress said no. So when you go to the argument, you know, some people say actually it was Nehru who torpedoed um, the cabinet mission plan. Others say it was an absolutely ridiculous and unacceptable plan. Why on earth? Why on earth would India accept it? But there certainly is an argument that I've heard made that this was uh, uh, th this was something which could have avoided partition. All that bloodshed could have been avoided if people had followed this plan, uh, and and people take positions on this. Yeah, but I mean, so, I mean, all the way through, I think now all the way through says that this scheme is going to leave the centre without any strength to achieve anything. You know, we can have no power at all. If you, if you federate to this level, what is New India going to be? What is it going to, to mean? You know, if we want to industrialise the country, how do we do that if we've got these separated, federated um, existences? And I think he, he does this pivotal speech on the 10th of July, 1946, where he rejects any idea that provinces will be obliged to join one of the groups. Because he also says, you know, it's a self-expression thing. Why should we force someone to be under Jinnah's umbrella when they don't want to be under Jinnah's umbrella? So anyway, that falls apart. And then we have, you know, sort of after that, the response to that. Again, the first, I suppose, episode of enormous violence is Direct Action Day. And that's as a result of the Cabinet Mission Plan being rejected by Nehru. Jinnah and um, Surawadi, who we've talked about, um, who are in Bengal, in Calcutta. So this is an absolute betrayal of what we thought we were on the same page and we're not. So we're going to show them with direct action, which is walking out of our businesses and the strike. And and then there is the grey area of, is this orchestrated violence that follows? Is it accidental violence that follows? And I, I go back to Aisha Jalal's episode that she did with us. But it is the very first sweep of mass communal violence. And it is absolutely a foreshadowing of what's going to happen during partition. When people try to simplify 
the blame game, in a sense, in partition. There are those who say it was all the British, they deliberately did this or deliberately did that. You find some um, historians, particularly on the right, who point to the cabinet mission plan and say all this bloodshed could have been avoided if only they'd accepted that. One of the positions taken by defenders of the British who said that who say that this could have been avoided is that they argue that the cabinet mission plans should have been accepted and that Nehru was wrong to veto it. Yeah, yeah. Whether that's right or not, of course, is a, is is another question entirely. And, and as Anita says, it would have led to very very weak India with different regions permanently at uh, at loggerheads with each other with their own self interest. Yeah. Well, um, so this we're getting the red light. <laughs> we're getting <laughs> not for the first green, time and greening. <laughs> And we've completely failed to be brief and succinct. Um, so I think we're going to have to do two parts, William, if this I question answered something. Given how long we've been talking. And also just your excellent, excellent question. So do keep your questions coming in. And we'll be back on Thursday, a very special episode, because we went on for too long for the Tuesday episode. <laughs> we backed on and on and on. <laughs> so we'll see you then. It's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.